we can often go into the world looking for something that will fulfill us and nothing ever does in a lasting way but rather than confront that what we do is we then find something that is always a ever receding obstacle because what's even more frightening than not finding something that will satisfy us is is giving up that very belief itself but that's what i mean when i talk about atheism for lent and the idea that actually we have to give up that very notion if we're going to get over it to something better and that's what we find difficult to give up that's why in many ways uh, the gambler is not addicted to winning they're addicted to losing because when they lose it feeds the fantasy that if they won it would be incredible right but if they won all the time they'd make money but they'd realize that it doesn't fill the existential gap it doesn't take away the traumas of life so there's this weird sense in which we can often become addicted not to the good but to the bad because the bad allows a fantasy of the good and we have to be freed from that fantasy i see this in unhealthy relationships a lot where someone will say to me oh i'm just addicted to the good times i know there's bad times but i'm just addicted to the good times but often it's like no you're not you're addicted to the bad times because the bad times make you fantasize that that relationship could be amazing if only you could get over these few obstacles and that's that prevents you from facing up to the fact that maybe no relationship is perfect and you have to enjoy the mundane dimensions of life uh, but that's a very hard thing for us to embrace when it's good, it's just so great Tell myself you're worth the wait I just think about the good old days You're spinning me round in circles I'm barely holding on But when I lie here with you I feel this love so strong Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast I'm your host, John Williamson And welcome to 2021 Very exciting Whole new uh, slate of guests, uh, some new, some returning, uh, some names that you'll recognize from the past and not too distant past uh, will be coming at you fast and furious um, starting now. So uh, this guest, for those of you who have uh, hung in there over the years and have stuck with us since the early days, uh, believe it or not, 2016 is when we started this whole project. And uh, by the way, Adam sends his love. He's doing well. Uh, but when we started this project, Adam and I, back in 2016, one of the very first guests that, that for whatever odd reason, decided to, uh, to say yes to our invitation to come on a as-yet-to-be-known podcast, we were um, really in the infancy. I think we had done one episode, the, the very first episode, just between Adam and I, just talking about what it means to go through a, a spiritual deconstruction. And it, really, it was really Adam's idea. I give all the credit to him uh, for deciding like, hey, let's reach out to some people that we think would be interesting interviews. And, you know, if we reach out to like 50 people, maybe one person will say yes and we'll do an interview. And then um, if you go back to 2016, 2017, uh, we basically ended up releasing an episode a week, um, which if this is not your full-time job is not sustainable, um, not healthy. <laughs> Let me tell you that. We were working uh, uh, pretty hard. It was a pretty exhausting year, but... Um, but anyway, uh, one of the first people who said yes to us, who just immediately understood, um, you know, what we were trying to accomplish and the, the message we were trying to get across and, and just 
understood us, just got us from the, from the very beginning was the good doctor, Peter Rollins. And so if that name sounds familiar, uh, he's uh, good friends with Rob Bell and uh, has been on his podcast n- numerous times. He's been on uh, the comedian Pete Holmes podcast, and he's just a, a brilliant guy and, and could not be a nicer guy. And we really owe a lot to him for saying yes before we really even had a podcast. And so he had no reason to say yes and come on at that point. Uh, like I said, I think we, I think Adam and I had recorded one episode and um, had not really done or released any uh, interviews at that point. And uh, he said yes. And so we are forever indebted, forever grateful. And he always brings um, just amazing ideas and content to the podcast. So so super grateful and was super excited to have him back on, I believe, without looking, I think it's been since 2018, since last he was on when we did an episode on C.S. Lewis. So for those of you who are not familiar with his work, I would highly recommend uh, going back to, like I said, I think the first time he was on was 2016, where we really take a deeper dive into his specialty, which is uh, pyrotheology and what that, what that really means. And so uh, go back to that episode, check it out. And uh, the, I think two episodes between then and now. Uh, so I think this is the fourth time he's been on. But anyway, go back, listen to the older ones. We get much, much uh, deeper into what it, what pyrotheology really means, uh, what it's all about. Uh, we dive into it a little bit here, but really the reason we had him on is because Pete runs this amazing course. Every year he's been doing it for, I think he figured out like over 20 years now. And uh, every Lent he does this course called Atheism for Lent. And I know that sounds crazy to some of you who uh, are like, why, why, would, why would I dive into atheist literature for Lent? That sounds crazy, but... Uh, hang in there with me. Uh, it's just this really, really interesting, uh, course. And, uh, he takes you through these daily reflections, uh, throughout the the course of Lent and, um, really looks at some, some really great critiques, uh, of Christianity. And, um, and there is a point to all of it. And, uh, as we've always said on the podcast, we always, um, firmly believe in reading things that, uh, are outside your echo chamber, outside your area of comfort. Um, you know, and, uh, and it's just a really fun course. And of course, like listening to Pete talk about it and his beautiful Irish accent just makes it that much more enjoyable. So definitely check it out. We'll talk about it, uh, throughout this episode and, uh, we'll have a giveaway here shortly. We wanted to get the, uh, the giveaway going. Uh, we have four tickets to atheism for Lent to give away that we will be giving away through social media, probably Twitter. Uh, so if you don't follow us on Twitter, go follow us on Twitter. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll announce uh, the contest soon. And uh, if you want to get involved in that uh, or, or try to win the, one of the four free tickets, you can. Uh, otherwise, if you're just interested in signing up for the course, uh, we will, of course, have all of the links in the show notes. Uh, but you can go to, to Pete's website and sign up for it there. And it's, it's absolutely worth it. Very, 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 very highly re- recommended from, from us to you. So uh, with that, let's talk a little bit about 2021. So, uh, we've, like I said, we've got a lot of really cool guests coming uh, coming up in in the next year uh, that I'm very excited to share with you. Uh, some very different topics that maybe we haven't addressed, at least not in great depth before. Uh, and so, very excited to share those with you. Like I said, some returning guests, some guests that we uh, had had on in the early days who. Um, I really wanted to have back on just because they were um, such great, such great guests uh, who provided such great content and and 
folks listening really, really enjoyed those episodes. So, um, so we'll have a couple, well, probably more than a couple, uh, (laughs) returning guests back on again, uh, that hopefully you'll enjoy. Uh, other than that, the music in this episode, if you're new to the podcast, uh, we have a different band or artist on every episode that we feature, uh, who are kind enough to allow us to use their music and feature some of their, their tunes. Um, of course, in the show notes, the links to their social media uh, and where you can find their music and the, and the names of the songs that we used. And I also update our Spotify playlist. So if you search The Deconstructionists on Spotify, you will find a running playlist that, that I update uh, with a song by that artist from that episode um, every time we release a new one. So it's an ever-growing uh, list of music. Uh, so if, you, if you're into the music, uh, enjoy that. Uh, follow us on there. Um, and like I said, it, it's constantly being updated. Uh, but the artist this week is uh, an artist that goes under the name The Beach. Uh, really beautiful tunes. Uh, so go out, support his music, uh, especially now during the, you know, while the pandemic is still going on, you know, a lot of artists uh, cannot get out there. You know, comedians, musicians can't get out there um, and and really earn a living in the way that they're used to. So um, we're having to get very creative a lot of musicians are doing live streams and and things like that. Um, so go out and support uh, and and help help keep those uh, those musicians employed. And then hopefully before too long we'll be able to go to concerts again because that would be uh, pretty nice. But uh, so check that out if you want to support us. Uh, we've got a Patreon. Uh, you can find the links to that in our show notes as well. We've got different packages. Um, ranging from if you just want to support us uh, to help uh, fund all of the costs that go along with the podcast, uh, or if you like one of the other packages, our ever-popular book club, or we ship you a, a book every month. Um, that's uh, probably our most popular one. You can sign up for that through uh, the show notes as well. And then, of course, links to our social media and our website where you can go. Uh, we have the entire back catalog of all of our episodes. We're over 115 now, I think. Uh, and then plus some bonus episodes in there as well. Uh, you can listen to all those through our website. You can read our blog through the website. Um, and of course, link to our social media through there as well. So as always, thank you guys so much for supporting. Sorry about the long intro. Uh, it's a new year. So uh, we'll get to it though. And uh, we'll see you again in two weeks uh, with another episode. Excited to be in the new year. Excited to bring you guys new content. Thank you so much for continuing to support and to listen. Um, and as always, if you if you want to support in the world's easiest way, uh, tell a friend. Um, you know, share a podcast with others. And uh, if you leave us a nice five star review on iTunes, it just helps us get more exposure. So um, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. And without further ado, here is Doctor Peter. Freaking Rollins. All right, welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast. It has been quite some time. Welcome, the good doctor, Peter Rollins. Hello, man. It's good to be back. Uh, it's been way too long. I've always been a big fan of the podcast. So uh, thankfully, I was able to get myself into your good graces and get back on. <laughs> I think it's been, I had, to, I had to go back and look, I think it's been uh, since 2018, uh, since last year. I think we did, uh, it was when we did the episode on C.S. Lewis. Oh, wow. Very good. Very good. Yeah, no, I've been like, I don't know how long I've known you guys for now. And 
followed your work, but, um, you know, I've always, I remember the beginning of the podcast, actually. I, how many years ago has it been oh, gosh. now since you started? I think it's almost five years now. It's 20, 2016. And, and, uh, I mean, we owe a lot to you. You were one of the first people who said yes to coming on before we had even established ourselves in any way. And so, uh, you know, we will forever be indebted uh, to you for that. <laughs> oh well no it's just good to see and you got in just before everybody has a podcast so now yeah. my goodness it's like uh, uh everybody has one it's hard to kind of be heard above the noise but you started this probably still there was a lot of podcasts happening but you were still a bit ahead of the curve well thanks uh, yeah i appreciate that they're making it too easy now they have software that you just click play or click record and you know you can you can start a podcast so easily now and you know i i, I remember back when Adam was still learning how to uh, edit and uh, we were just kind of learning as we went along and hopefully got better. Well, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes that's the curse when you actually get better. Um, me and my friend Elliot, we do the fundamentalist podcast and I worry that if ever it becomes professional, um, <laughs> we'll lose right. <laughs> all, all of the, uh, uh, all of the energy or something. There's something about the unprofessionalism that, that maybe is good. Yeah, yeah. I feel like musicians talk about that too. When it's too overproduced, it loses uh, some of its authenticity. So I, I completely agree with you there. Yeah. Well, man, it's good to be back and uh, excited to to have a conversation with you. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And um, yeah, I think I think a good place to start this time around. It it has been a little uh, a little while, and uh, we've always viewed this podcast as as something that uh, is never meant to be permanent. You know, it's uh, kind of cyclical. And, and so people, people will pop in for a while. It'll be useful uh, for them in, in some way. And then, and then maybe uh, they no longer need it anymore. And so we have, you know, new people who come in. And so there's probably a lot of folks who are listening now who weren't listening perhaps last time you're on. So uh, maybe you could give perhaps uh, a 10 cent uh, definition of what pyrotheology is, which is really the basis of, of your work. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No. That's a. That's a. That's always a tough one. Um, yeah. So uh, for people who don't don't know who I am, obviously from my accent, people will know I'm from Ireland. Uh, I live in Los Angeles now, and uh, my primary training is in philosophy. And uh, I, a lot of my work, I guess, just to give a very brief genealogy, actually, of parotheology. Um, a lot of my work began with helping explore how doubt, ambiguity, and complexity was part of life and uh, part of faith, but also part of life more generally. And that actually doubt and unknowing can be a very positive force, uh, not something that we have to run from and be frightened of or try to repress. So my work was partly about showing how those elements of life are deeply embedded in the, the tradition of faith. And then as my work has developed, it's gone deeper and deeper into the idea that actually doubt and unknowing and complexity are not just things that are part of life and uh, can be beneficial, but are actually central to, to what life is and to the life of faith. So pyrotheology, the pyro means fire. So you can think of like burning things up. Uh, but um it's a type of approach which tries to get people to a faith that is not to do with what you believe, a set of doctrines, a set of beliefs, but um, uh, kind of a, a certain way of being in the world, a certain form of life. 
So does that get? I sometimes I think the explanations make it more <laughs> more obscure than no, that's, than that's perfect. Clearing anything up, <laughs> and, we, and we can always do this. We can always say uh, if you want to go back to earlier episodes and when we when we last had ah, Pete yes. on, you can you can get a deeper dive into that. But uh, that's a good that's a good place to start. <laughs> So, um, yeah. so specifically though, we, we had you on, uh, today because, um, when this episode comes out, uh, about a week from now will be when you kick off your, your annual course, uh, that you call atheism for Lent. And so, uh, yes. yeah, talk a little bit about that. Cause you've been doing this for, I think you said about 20 years now, how did this all begin and, and what is the, the intention behind it? Yeah. So as part of my work, it's not just kind of theoretical, philosophical, or theological work. It also has a practical dimension, and there are practices that come out of my work. And I call these decentering practices. Uh, so it's a play on centering practices, but these are decentering practices. They're designed to challenge us in a in an exciting and positive way to destabilize us, to send us off on a new course. And one of those decentering practices was atheism for Lent. And atheism for Lent, um, to begin to kind of talk about it, you, when it first started, I would say it like this. I wanted to show that atheism and theism are not as far apart as people think. People think that they are enemies, that they uh, hate each other or can merely tolerate each other. And if you watch YouTube debates, that would seem to kind of solidify that idea. But I wanted to show that actually atheism and theism have been in this kind of love affair, this dance for thousands of years, um, that they enrich each other, that they um, can challenge each other, and that actually an atheism that's divorced from theism or a theism that's divorced from atheism, um, both of them become very shallow and immature. So part of atheism for Lent was helping people to... kind of encounter thinkers that they wouldn't normally encounter and to see how atheism is part of the theological tradition. So what I've always been interested in knowing is, is how do you go about selecting? Cause obviously it's, it's uh, evolved over time. I think you've even mentioned in, in other talks that uh, you know, the, the thinkers and, and the, the readings that you selected originally have evolved and changed over time. So what goes into the process of deciding you know, who's going to be part of this coursework and are there, is it a mixture of, of critiques from within Christianity and outside of Christianity, or is it mostly, you know, individuals who are, who are critiquing from outside of Christianity? Yeah. And by the way, just before I jump into that, uh, my headphones just stopped working. Does everything sound okay? Cause now I'm headphoneless. Oh, no, Headphone-less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You sound fine. <laughs> okay. That's okay. Well, let's keep on trucking then. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's basically, I want to, would argue that atheism and theism are connected in three ways and they get kind of increasingly more interesting and complicated as we go forward. So the first relationship is that atheism and theism are external to each other. There are external critiques of religion and Christianity uh, that coming from people who, you know, reject religion. And that atheism for Lent uh, begins by looking at some of those critiques and how some of those critiques um, have kind of like been uh, a way of kind of like having this really interesting discussion, this back and forth between atheism and theism. 
But the second stage is when you discover that atheism also comes from within Christianity, that some of the greatest critiques of God and of different notions of God actually come from religious thinkers like, like Soren Kierkegaard, um, that there is a, there's a tradition called the critique of idolatry. Um, there's the mystical tradition that says that every time you name God with a theism, you have to have an atheism, you have to de-name God, because that word describes something greater than we can conceive. So that's the second level is actually there's also an internal atheism. And then the third, which is the most weird, with the first time people hear this, the most difficult idea is that atheism isn't simply external to the life of theology. It's not even internal, like a purification where various theologians have critiqued notions of God, but it might also be central, that there's something about the death of God, the loss of belief, experience of nihilism that is central to the life of Christianity. And that notion, um, because of its radicality, is basically rejected by much of the confessional church but um, in Atheism for Lent, I try to draw out what that could possibly mean. Because <laughs> uh, the idea that the death of God is central to Christianity, well, at first it sounds, at first it sounds crazy, because <laughs> um, you think of Nietzsche and the death of God. But then, of course, the second thing you do is you go, oh, hold on a second. Paul the Apostle was all about, I want to preach Christ crucified. <laughs> like The death of God is actually central to Christianity. And uh, that's... It's something that very few people, there are various philosophers and theologians, but um, very few people within the church have given that much thought. Mm. So we could jump into that one if you wanted, or do you want to go take one of the easier ones first? Yeah, no, yeah, that, no, that's, <laughs> let's keep going with that one, because I know there are a lot of people out there who are, who are probably, you know, you know, have a very quizzical look on their face right now, and they're like, what, what yeah. how, how does the death of God help? That sounds terrifying, um, and, you know, so, so continue on that that path of thought like what do you what do you mean by that and and how is that in fact yeah. helpful so one of the things maybe a good way to think about this is through the idea of dialectics dialectics is a philosophical name for a type of thinking and it's a type of thinking that plato thought was so difficult that you shouldn't even try it until you're 30 um, and that's when people die quite young so it may be the equivalent of saying you shouldn't try dialectics till you're 60 years old you know um it's a form of thought which sees um, the connections between opposites, which instead of cause and effect, right, cause and effect exists, and that's the realm of science where you see certain things happen and they then create an effect, and that is a cause for another effect. Dialectics is a little bit different. Dialectics is about showing how within life, um, a position will give birth to its opposite, what's called an antithesis. And then that opposite um, goes into a third place, which encompasses the original affirmation. So I'll give you some examples. Um, in psychoanalysis, right, uh, you might go, like, I'm depressed, I'm unhappy, I want to be happy. So you've got two things in front of you. You've got happiness and you've got unhappiness. And you go to the therapist because you want to be happy. But the, the therapist pushes you into your unhappiness. They push you into the darkness. Because the idea is only when you go into the darkness can you find the light. 
or only when you give yourself over to death, for example, in love, where you give yourself over to someone else, can you find life? Um, dialectics is this weird thing in which uh, two opposite things, the sacred and the profane, the idea is that you find the sacred within the profane. Um, so one of the bizarre things about dialectics is in our lives, when we have two positions that are opposites, we either try to unify them or we always pick the best, right? So again, happiness and sadness. Well, I'm going to pick happiness. Dialectics is this weird thing where you go, you've got to choose the worst, but you choose it. And in choosing it, absolutely, you get the very thing that you lost. So Christianity um, is very dialectic. You find these, these movements all of the time. You know, so for example, the highest God dying is a type of dialectic. That's an absurdity. The idea of the, um, um, you know, the, the creator of the universe being finite, the infinite being finite is a type of uh, absurdity. as a type of dialectic. The idea that you must lose your life to find it or that um, the idea that uh, the kingdom of heaven is on earth, right? These are dialectic expressions. And so and the reason why I set that up is that there's this really interesting thing in Christianity where the idea is that you actually have to identify with the death of God, with the crucifixion. There is something about going wholly into darkness and despair, into nihilism, that that you can only get beyond it by fully going into that, what, what the mystics used to call the dark night of the soul or the cloud of unknowing. Um, so yeah, does that start to make any sense? Yeah, that's, that's great. And it's funny. You made me think of the, uh, the Disney Pixar movie inside out. Have you, have you seen that? Mm. I have. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of the, the fact that, you know, in the end you realize that, that happiness can't just exist alone. It has to exist alongside sadness. Sadness brings something, you know, uh, to, to life, to, you know, to the human condition. Um, Absolutely. We, we live in the tyranny, of <clears throat> the tyranny of happiness, the tyranny of certainty and satisfaction that we, we it's funny, the superego injunction in psychoanalysis used to think about that in terms of this voice that's always telling you that you should be nicer as a person, you know, be nicer to your mum, uh, look after your neighbour. But today, the superego injunction is mostly you should be, have more friends, you should be more fulfilled, you should be out more having better sex, you should be going out with someone cooler. It's a weird superego injunction to hedonism where we always feel like we're missing out, that there's something we should be doing, and we condemn ourselves for it. So this is called the tyranny of happiness. And um, it's, it's actually only in being able to kind of give that up and embrace dissatisfaction that we can find satisfaction. And it sounds so counterintuitive that the idea is that I have to embrace dissatisfaction to be satisfied. Um, I have to embrace sacrifice in order to find depth. These can initially sound counterintuitive. And yet at the same time, I think we all know deep down that there's a truth to this dialectic type of movement. And the ultimate dialectic is between theism and atheism. The idea that, oh my goodness, maybe the ultimate, the ultimate way of finding meaning is somehow by being courageous enough to embrace the experience of lack of meaning. 
Um, and to see that as a theological journey. We could go back when we were children, running in circles in glass houses. I wish we could go back to when we were younger. Nothing could touch us, can see the mountains. Yeah, I, I want you to, to to keep talking about that because one of the one of the things I wrote down um, was I've heard you talk a lot about kind of this um, addiction to certainty, and I, I think we see that a lot, especially in in um, in, the, in the work that we we both do. This addiction to certainty, and in how um, even if you are kind of stripping away your your religious beliefs, so to speak, and and kind of drifting more towards atheism, there's still, you can still become a fundamentalist just on the opposite side and how it seems yeah. to be just this, this need to continue to fill that void that you talk about it. And I, I think you call it, uh, the lack. So, so yes. yeah, talk yeah, about I that. Am. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons why I live in Los Angeles is because it's one of the most religious places in the world. Um, in that there's people in every corner that are promising certainty and satisfaction. If you look the right way, have enough money, do the right yoga practices or whatever it is, um, there's in psychoanalysis called the non-castrated other. Like we fantasize that there's someone who is, who has the thing, who's happy and complete. We're looking for the guru who will give us the answer. And what happens a lot is when people leave a religion, say Christianity, as in its confessional form, often they leave the religion, but they don't leave the type of relationship that they had with the religion. So now they go into, say, psychedelic enlightenment or like polyamory or another religion or uh, looking, thinking that money will bring completeness. There's all these other kind of um, ersatz absolutes, right? These alternative absolutes that we seek. And in, like in a deep way, the word religion, one way to describe religion is the desire to get rid of the lack, to get rid of dissatisfaction, to find completeness, a wholeness, whether in this life or the next. And the reason why Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others like him talked about religionless Christianity is that they argue that this is opposed to the deepest dimension of Christianity and also other religions as well, that actually, instead of trying to overcome lack, always trying to find a thing that will fill us, make us whole and complete, it's actually that very pursuit that makes us feel so incomplete. And as we are able to embrace um, our doubt and unknowing and, and the fractured nature of life, that's actually where we start to feel a genuine joy and a genuine peace. And if I just go back to the very opening story in the, in the, uh, in the Jewish scriptures, you have this notion of Adam and Eve, right? They're running around this garden and there's an apple or a piece of fruit. And this serpent says, if you eat of that apple, you will be like God. Right, which means you will lack the lack, you will be whole and complete. Right, This is the religious notion of God, is that the, the one that lacks nothing. So you eat this piece of fruit and you will lack the lack, you'll be whole and complete. And there's a prohibition and they break through the prohibition, they eat the fruit and they think it's going to be amazing, but it's an absolute disaster. Now, that's an eatable story because Freud 
uses the Oedipus story to say a similar lesson, which is this guy Oedipus wants to sleep with his mother. He can't. He doesn't know it's his mother, but his father's in the way stopping him. So he murders his father. He sleeps with his mother. He thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster. And in a way, you can see the mother as a symbol of wholeness, oceanic oneness, a return to the womb. The father is what's getting in the way of you getting the the womb-like return. You kill the father, you get the wholeness and completeness, and it's a disaster, right? This is a problem that we see constantly today. We often think if only we get rid of this group of people, then everything will be great. If only we get rid of this or that, um, I can find this wholeness. Not realizing that it's that entire structure that's that's the problem. And very quickly, in theology, there's a technology to free you from this frenetic pursuit of wholeness, and it's called grace. Grace is the experience in which you realize you do not have to do anything. There's nothing you can do to fill that lack, to get what you need to be, who you need to be. So grace is the opposite of self-help. It's like this thing where you literally don't have to do anything. But the irony is when you experience grace, it changes you. The very kind of like moment in which you go, I don't have to change at all, is what changes you. So that's another dialectic, right? By not doing anything, that's how real change happens. <laughs> so yeah, so um, I don't know if that fleshes it out a little bit. Yeah, there, there's some other things I, I, I was uh, curious to, to get your thoughts on. Uh, I, I'd heard you talk about, and I thought this was really interesting actually, um, because I, I think a lot of people have heard, um, you know, like Richard Rohr and, and some things, some some folks who kind of follow uh, more of a, a um, Franciscan uh, way of looking at um, what we call original sin, or they would refer to as original blessing. And I've heard you talk about um, a third option, original lack. And you have this great quote where you say, uh, to be human is to be incomplete, but looking at that in a way that's not negative. So, yes. Yeah, yes. so talk about the original lack, because I really like the way that you articulated that. Yeah, so this this is why I'm not a progressive is one of the many reasons, but um, is that I have a I have a big issue with this notion of original blessing. The, the notion of original blessing is the idea that there is an original wholeness and completeness. Um, there is a there's a primordial kind of like point when nature was not at war with itself, where antagonism didn't exist, where contradiction wasn't uh, woven into being itself. And then there is a fall. Now, depending on whether you come from a more Eastern or Western tradition, that fall is a fall into illusion, or it is a real ontological fall, which means there a real um, kind of a, a, what would you call it? An oscillation enters into reality itself. So salvation from the, from the more Eastern position is to realize that everything already is whole and complete and the fall is just a fall into a veil of uh, illusion and you have to just realize that everything already is perfect um, at one or nothing or everything Um, and the other is that something did happen in the universe big bang is scientifically like an oscillation happened that created everything but also this uh, you know this violence and this lack that is within us. Now, with that notion of original blessing and then a fall, 
then you have the idea of a return to wholeness and completeness. You know, that's what, that's what you're aiming to, to get. Now, from, a, from an existential and psychoanalytic perspective, um, you start with, I would say, original sin, right? Now, original meaning coming first and sin just meaning lack. So no moral dimension to this at all. Um, in psychoanalysis, subjectivity is birthed in lack. To, to be human is to, to see yourself as a subject, a self that is separate from the, what's outside of yourself. There is something about subjectivity that you, where you experience yourself as a self. It's not just, but what happens is when we, and this happens around the, the mirror stage uh, at a very early age, um, where you begin to get a sense of subjectivity. But with this, you also get this sense of loss. I lost something. I lost a wholeness and completeness with the world. And so you start to long for it. And that makes us susceptible to every uh, sacred and secular promise that a certain product or a certain thing will, will give us that wholeness and completeness. But if you go with the idea that actually to be human is to experience a type of not at oneness with yourself, then salvation is not about getting rid of the lack. It's about seeing the lack as part of reality itself. In theological terms, by the way, the devil used to be thought of as, or evil used to be thought of as lack, as nothingness, right? Um, like the hole in your shoe that lets the water in. Um, but in this perspective, nothingness or lack is not evil. It's the inability to confront your lack. It's the inability to make peace with your dissatisfaction, to make peace with the struggles of life. That's what causes violence. Um, that's called scapegoating. When I can't look at my own lack, so I put it onto somebody else and I let them carry it. So um, in my work, this idea of original lack is very, very key. And by the way, I... <clears throat> If I can say something like this, this is not just theological or anything like that. There's, there's names for this in every discipline, right? They get there eventually. Politics is one of the first. So the, the political name for the non-oneness of the social body is democracy. So democracy is the idea that there is a not-oneness within the social body, right, that actually drives things forward. Uh, in biology, it's called evolution, Evolution is a type of non-at-oneness of biological organisms that creates um, complexity. Uh, in mathematics, it's called incompleteness, uh, where um, Gödel worked out that mathematics can't ground its own uh, axioms. Uh, so what happens is when mathematics tries to have a complete kind of axiomatic system, it falls into contradiction and that this is actually productive. <laughs> um, in physics, it's called wave-particle duality. In other words, what I'm saying is, oh, and in psychoanalysis, it's called the unconscious. What I'm saying is that in various disciplines, we come to realize that there is something fundamental about um, uh, not-at-oneness that is what's productive of, of so much. Um, and religionless Christianity is about saying that the role of the church is to help us experience and enter into that embrace of the lack. <clears throat> oh, I love that. So, 
So, so really, ultimately, the, the goal uh, would be to first acknowledge the fact that the lack exists, and then secondly, to relieve ourselves of the anxiety of, uh, of constantly attempting to fill it. Yes, yes. I mean, and this, this is central to, I think, the, the, the central moment of Christianity. Because, first of all, you can see the Temple of Jerusalem as a replaying of, of the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of Eden I mentioned earlier has three parts. You've got the garden that they can hang out in. You've got the sacred place with the fruit that will give you the knowledge of good and evil, make you like God. And then there's the prohibition. In the Temple of Jerusalem, there's the Court of Gentiles where everybody can go. There's the sacred, the Holy of Holies, where, you know, this, the God lies, the Absolute is. And then there's a massive curtain that separates people from the Holy of Holies. And in the crucifixion, the temple curtain rips. And suddenly you see the sacred and there's nothing there. It's just an empty room. This for me is the nihilistic heart of conversion. It's the moment when you realize that all of the frantic pursuits of the sacred, of the thing that will make you whole and complete, are pointless because nothing's there. Every time you... Slavio Šizek has a beautiful way to describe this phenomenon. Um, what I'm talking about, there's a technical word for it, and it's called objet putia. In, uh, it was, you can call it small object A in uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis. And this small object A is the thing that you really want, that if you could only have, you'd be satisfied. But every time you grasp it, you don't have it. It's not the thing. And Shizek says, this is kind of like uh, fossils for creationists. So at the time of Darwin, one of his friends uh, responded to this notion of fossils by saying that fossils were put there by God to make the earth look old. So fossils were fossilized remains of something that never actually existed. And that's what it's like when we get the thing that we think will make us whole and complete. We end up with a fossil of something that never actually existed in the first place. And in, in the conversion moment, we realize this. And this is connected to Christ crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where God experiences the loss of God, where we realize that God is not at one with God. So in philosophy, this is the notion that, that the absolute is also um, not one. And as we identify with that, we embrace that lack and we're able to overcome it. And by the way, just one thing, this is called the forgiveness of sin. Mm. So sin, think of sin as debt. And a debt is a nothingness that is something. If you owe me money, um, it's a debt. It's a nothingness. It's a lack. But it's a lack that makes you anxious. If someone pays that debt, they fill the lack they take the lack and they put money in. They go, there's the hundred bucks, give it to Pete. If I forgive the debt, it's not that I render the, it's not that I fill the nothingness. I render the nothingness nothing. So there's a very big difference between paying a debt and forgiving a debt. And my whole work is about saying that the Christian experience is the forgiveness of the lack. This, the, the, where, you, where this nothingness, this lack that is making your life miserable no longer is robbed of its sting and no longer has this negative dimension to it.
the things I wanted you to talk a little bit more about too, because I've heard you mention it and it, and it sounds sort of similar to what our mutual friend, uh, Tad DeLay talks about in his, in his most recent book, but more probably in regards to like politics. And it's this idea that, um, we, we almost derive pleasure from the pursuit, uh, versus the destination. And it seems to me that that occurs a lot in, in, in life, whether it's the, the one thing I came to mind was, um, I think it was Jonathan Haidt, uh, in, in his book, The Righteous Mind, talks about just the um, the idea of justice. Uh, we're always pursuing justice, but to say that we've ever arrived at justice would be ridiculous because our sense of what is just evolves constantly over time. And so it, yes. it, it almost seems like that's, in a sense, kind of what, what you're saying as well, is like, you know, the, the pursuit, you know, we, we're almost deriving more enjoyment from the pursuit, per se, than when we actually get the thing, the object of our desire. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, the the word deconstruction um, is a Derridean term that, and it kind of means that uh, he talked about something called the undeconstructible, and the undeconstructible was not something you ever grasped. Uh, So he said, like, justice is undeconstructible, but as soon as you think you've got it, you haven't. Mm. Um, It's like when you meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. It's not the Buddha, right? It's like justice is always to come. It's always something one strives for. And this is very central in psychoanalysis. Today, we have a fantasy. We've always had different versions of this, but I'll give you the modern version of the fantasy. Is that I have a job that I hate. I'm struggling. It's tough. But I have a fantasy that maybe if I made enough money, I could get that house by the beach and I could relax and I could stop this sacrifice that I'm having to give every day of my life. I'm sacrificing in this unhealthy way. That fantasy is the fantasy that happiness and satisfaction and depth can arise from a a world and a life where sacrifice is lacking. But the problem is that's not the case. For life to have meaning, we have to find something worth sacrificing for. The problem is in our society, we're sacrificing uh, for other people's benefits, not our community's benefits, not the people who are around us, our neighbors. Um, It's for faceless people. Um, But in psychoanalysis, there's a notion that, well, in fact, there's a whole thing about happiness as the, the category of fools. You can be happy potentially, but you do want to be happy. Happiness is like this weird contentment, this animalistic contentment. What you really want is joy. And joy is a type of pleasure you get in not having. Um, and so you think of a kid at Christmas, there's, there's enjoyment or there's, there's pleasure in the opening the present at Christmas but there's the enjoyment of not opening the present, of waiting. <laughs> and uh, the enjoyment is usually more fun than the, than the opening of the present itself. So joy is a theological category. And it means a type of pleasure in not having, in struggle. And the real challenge for us is to not find a way in which we no longer have to sacrifice, but to realize that it's sacrifice itself that makes life meaningful. And religion's always been very good at that, actually. <laughs> it's always tried to find a way to have sacrifice as part of its its lifeblood. Oh, man. Uh, it, that made me think of um, something I've heard you talk about before, too, the, the um, pleasure principle versus reality principle and how that applies. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. Um, yeah, because Freud developed these terms, And uh, at their most basic, the pleasure principle is uh, kind of what you want to do. I want to 
to climb every tree that I see. I want to win all the games against my friends and I want to eat whatever I want. Um, and reality principle is what gets in the way, right? I can't climb all the trees I'm, if I'm a kid uh, it's, and my body won't let me. Uh, my parents won't let me eat whatever I want and my friends won't let me win all the games that I want. So reality principle is what gets in the way of the pleasure principle. But the, the kind of fundamental insight here of Freud is it's actually the reality principle that creates enjoyment because it's, it's the obstacle that, that generates the desire. If we got everything we wanted without the reality principle, we wouldn't be able to enjoy what we enjoy. We wouldn't be able to get um, kind of any satisfaction out of it. So there's a certain weird way in which the reality principle and the pleasure principle combine to create a type of dissatisfaction. Now, the problem is for many of us, that dissatisfaction is deeply painful because we fantasize about overcoming it. But in pyrotheology, the idea is to, to break free of that fantasy and to realize that actually it's, it's the, um, it's the impossibility of getting what you want that actually makes life really fun. I, I love that. Um, yeah. It's funny. Oh, and by the way, just to, just to connect it with the, the crucifixions, um, you have this with, they call in, in analysis, they call it the objective desire and the object cause of desire. So the objective desire is what you want and the object cause of desire is what makes you want it. So ironically, um, and I like to talk about um, there's a technology that you invented in America for to help young people have sex. And I thought it was really interesting. In a very permissive society, creating the technology to do that was needed. And the technology was a thing called a purity ring. And what, what you did is you put on this purity ring and it, it, you, the person who was wearing it was saying, right, I'm not going to have sex before marriage which immediately makes people want to sleep with the person <laughs> and immediately makes them, like makes sex interesting again. So that's a kind of a version of, of the, the very thing that's the, the opposition is actually the thing that generates. Um, you've heard me say this probably before, but um, the chaperone, the role of the chaperone was never to stop two people from doing anything untoward. The role of the chaperone was to get two people to start fantasizing about what they could do if the chaperone wasn't there to stop them. So traditionally, the chaperone was making love. They created love. You know, two people didn't make love. The chaperone made love. Um, so the funny thing is when, oh yeah, connecting with the crucifixion is God is the object of desire. And Christ is the object cause of desire, the thing that you have to get away, get killed, crucified to get back to God. But then in, in Christianity, you realize the unity, uh, the object cause of desire is the object of desire. The very obstacle is the answer. Again, another dialectic. Mm. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, and I, I love what you say too, uh, where you talk about the idea of um, if you really got everything you ever wanted, it would be a sort of hell. And uh, yeah. it immediately, I don't know if you've heard this quote, but it made me think of the Jim Carrey quote that's, that's pretty similar. I think he says, uh, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see it's not the answer. And it made me... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> he gets it very well. Yeah, no, Jim Carrey's very good on this. Um, it's like only, only when you fulfill your dreams do you realize that your dreams do not fulfill you. And by the way, this creates a very interesting dynamic and subjectivity. Um, René Girard once said that uh, there was a man who was told that there was a treasure under a rock in a field. And so he went into this rocky field to find a treasure, but every rock he picked up, there was no treasure. So eventually the man found a rock so heavy that he could not lift it. Now, what Girard is, is saying here is that we can often go into the world looking for something that will fulfill us. And nothing ever does in a lasting way. But rather than confront that, what we do is we then find something that is always an ever-receding obstacle. Because what's even more frightening than not finding something that will satisfy us is, is giving up that very belief itself. But that's what I mean when I talk about atheism for Lent and the idea that actually we have to give up that very notion if we're going to get over it to something better. And that's what we find difficult to give up. That's why in many ways uh, the gambler is not addicted to winning, they're addicted to losing. Because when they lose, it feeds the fantasy that if they won, it would be incredible. Right? But if they won all the time, they'd make money, but they'd realize that it doesn't fill the existential gap, it doesn't take away the traumas of life. So there's this weird sense in which we can often become addicted, not to the good, but to the bad, because the bad allows a fantasy of the good, and we have to be freed from that fantasy. I see this in unhealthy relationships a lot, where someone will say to me, oh, I'm just addicted to the good times. I know there's bad times, but I'm just addicted to the good times. But often it's like, no, you're not. You're addicted to the bad times. Because the bad times make you fantasize that that relationship could be amazing if only you could get over these few obstacles. And that's, that prevents you from facing up to the fact that maybe no relationship is perfect and you have to enjoy the mundane dimensions of life. Uh, but that's a very hard thing for us to embrace. Yeah, talk, talk about that. You, um, you mentioned the space in between uh, and anxiety as the experience of living in that in between place and you even give a name to it, the absurd. And I know you mentioned this earlier, but I wondered if you could go into that a little deeper and, and, um, and, and talk maybe a little bit about how you mentioned that Kierkegaard also says that Christianity helps to em- embrace the absurd, that space in between. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you touch on an important thing there that, so for Soren Kierkegaard, this idea of anxiety, anxiety is not something to overcome. 
anxiety is the uh, evidence of our freedom. Now, just to give a little bit of background to that, um, let's see how, how we could do this very quickly. Um, so with Immanuel Kant, the philosopher Kant, he talked about how human beings, he tried to talk about how human beings are free. And his way of doing it is saying that, without getting into technical details, um, that human beings experience a sense in which they don't know how they should act, right? A dog does dog-like stuff, a cat is a cat, a rock is a rock, but we as human beings constantly ask, what is it to be human? <coughs> and for Kant, this was evidence of our freedom. And for Kierkegaard, he said, that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is the experience that you don't know what you need to do. <coughs> you don't know what the other person wants of you. You you kind of are in this state of, of, of kind of... Uh, it being an in-between. And in our contemporary world, the idea is that you take drugs to get over anxiety or you do certain practices. But for Kierkegaard, it's like, no, what you have to do is find a way to accept the anxiety because the anxiety is the evidence of your freedom. It's the evidence of your spirit. Um, and it's, again, it's a kind of dialectic um, bringing together of of uh of two opposites because <laughs> we are animals and we do like uh kind of act in very idiosyncratic ways but then there's a dimension of us that is always asking what is it to be human and so for Kierkegaard it's like again in this dialectic way saying no anxiety isn't something to run from it's something to to embrace and even be able to take pleasure in. And that very act of doing that will rob the anxiety of its, of its sting. So anxiety is another name for lack um, in many ways. Mm. It, it reminds me, in, in, in a sense, in the way that, that mystics describe it, the way in which they view uncertainty or ambiguity and in, in, in the way that they find almost joy in the fact that they accept that there are just certain things that they just don't know. Yes, yes. Now here, can I outline, this, is, this gets us to the heart of things. This is great. We're getting quite deep. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Right. There's, there's two, here's, uh, there's, right, so you've got some of the traditional mystics and you've got this notion of the apophatic tradition, which is the, <clears throat> the way of the negative, the way of kind of a type of theological atheism denomination where you denominate you dename god every time you nominate god it's interesting that churches are called denominations right so we deem we actually are supposed to dename god now that's great um but there's often this notion of god as a hyper reality that is beyond contradiction and you know we just have to accept that because of our limits uh you know we can never know the mind of god and that's called epistemological humility. Uh, some philosophers like Merrill Westphal would embrace this. But then there's another position, and this is much more interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you it in, uh, in connection to apparel. Here's a story. This guy called Seamus, right? This guy, Seamus, he's down on his luck. He's lost a job. He doesn't have very much money. He's a very pious guy. And he's praying about this. He's like, God, I don't have any money. I'm going to lose the house. What do I do? And he hears this voice from heaven and it says, Seamus, sell everything you have, uh, you know, sell the house, do it all, get the money, go to Vegas. And Seamus is like, seriously? God's like, yeah. And he's a very, he's a, 
He's a pious man and he's a courageous man. He does it. He just sells everything, goes to Vegas, says, God, I'm here in Vegas. What do you want me to do? And he hears a voice from heaven saying, go sit down at the poker table and uh, bet, right, play one hand of poker. And Seamus like, I don't really know how to play poker. He says, let's just do it. So Seamus sits down. He gets dealt 7-2 off, right, worst hand you can get. And he's like, I better fold. And he hears God saying, go all in. Go all in? I said, yeah. So he goes all in. And the flop comes and it's not looking good. But then he hits two sevens on the river, um, the turn in the river, and he wins it. He's like, my goodness, I don't believe it. It's amazing. So he takes the money, and then he hears a voice from heaven saying, right, go to, um, go to the blackjack table. I want you to play one hand of blackjack. So he takes his money. I goes to one of the high-end tables, and he hears his voice from God saying, put it, all, put it all in. So he puts it all on one hand. And he gets 16 dealt to him. He's like, oh, what am I going to do? I should stick. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, don't stick, take a card. So he takes a card. It's a two. He's got 18. says, I'll better stick. He hears another voice going like, no, do it again. He does it again. He hits a three, gets 21, wins. Unbelievable. And now he's got a pile of money. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, go to the roulette table. And Seamus is like, no, not again. He says, go to the roulette table. So he does. And he hears the voice from heaven saying, put everything on five. And so Seamus does it, puts all the money on five. And sure enough, the ball rolls and rolls, bounces, bounces, bounces. It hits the five. And Seamus just looks up to heaven and says, I don't believe it. And he hears a voice from God saying, I don't believe it either. You're the luckiest bastard I've ever seen. <laughs> right? Now, what I like about this story is if you understand this, you understand the heart of radical theology. Right, We think that, yes, life is contingent, but the answer is in the absolute. But in the crucifixion, when Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I would argue that we realize that contingency and conflict is, is woven into the very nature of reality itself. Just as I mentioned with wave particle duality, with the incompleteness theorem, with the idea of democracy and the unconscious, that we discover that, that actually the universe um, is not one and not two. It's a not one. It's a one that is not one with itself. And we call this a trinity, actually. There's a theological name for it, trinity. But, um, and that this, this gap and this lack is what we need to embrace in order to find fullness of life. Gosh. So one thing I, I definitely want you to get into, because I think this relates to what, what you're talking about right now, is what happens when we, when we don't do that and uh, the manifesting of, of uh, what you call symptoms as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, this is, this is great. Right? This is the, the, and this is why the word sin actually is interesting. So if you take sin, see if I can do this, right? in three dimensions. So I'm going to call them ontological, ontic, and moral. So I've talked about sin as what's called ontology, which, you know, for for your listeners, it just means the nature of reality itself. So I've mentioned that this idea that there's lack that is part of reality that animates everything. Now, the ontic is the second dimension of that. And ontic just means beings, things. Now, the ontic dimension of sin 
is the idea that there is something that can fill that lack, something in the world that will get rid of it. So there's an ontological lack, but the ontic sin is whatever you do, whether it's drugs or charity work or anything that tries to fill the lack. This causes all sorts of problems in our lives, right? Causes all sorts of issues, anxieties. And, you know, when you're scrolling over Instagram and you're seeing all these uncastrated people, these people who seem to have it all, and you're fantasizing that you want it, right? And then there's the moral dimension. And the moral dimension is what you'll do to get it, right? Which is you will potentially damage the environment, yourself and other people to get the thing that will make you complete and whole. And what I would argue is that this, it's, it's called drive in psychoanalysis, but this drive, um, when it's negatively formed in the way that I've just described, it is the cause of all of the major human evils that we see, right? There's lots of death and destruction in the universe, right? But when we're talking about human evil, we're talking about a very specific thing. And in Christianity, there's this notion that evil derives from scapegoating. And the scapegoat mechanism is very simple. It's, and you see it in fascism. Fascism is the easiest way to see it, right? So in fascism, there's the notion of an organic whole. The world is an organic oneness. But there is an, a virus, something that is destabilizing everything. And we have to get rid of that destabilizing force in order for society to run well. And in fascism, it's the figure of the Jew. The Jewish community is the community to get rid of in order to reestablish wholeness, completeness, organic oneness. This is scapegoating. The truth is the figure of the Jewish community is not the problem. It's the solution to a problem. Because once they would get rid of the Jewish community, they would realize that actually the lack that they think is outside of them is within them, right? So to have a shared enemy is to find a way to unify around, um, around a shared hatred. So the, the consequences of not embracing your lack, of not embracing this struggle in life, is that you put it onto someone else, you create scapegoats, you, you start to blame other people and go, if only we got rid of them, then everything would be good. And the only answer is to embrace and see this, the lack within yourself. I, AA is always a good example for me because an AA, it's a community of people who all they do is they're all just honest about their, their brokenness. And there's 12 steps but before the 12 steps, there's step zero. And step zero is grace. You're just in a room where you say your name and you say you're an alcoholic in a room of people who don't expect you to change, to do anything. They just acknowledge that you're accepted. They ac and you accept that you're accepted. That's, uh, by the way, Paul Tillich's definition of grace is the acceptance that you're accepted. Because if I accept you, but you can't accept that acceptance, you still haven't felt the power of grace. So eventually, maybe over months, that person in AA accepts that they're accepted, that they don't have to do anything. And then the 12 steps become effective, right? So that's, that's basically, it's like there's two types of community you can have. One that denies the lack, puts it onto somebody else, or one that accepts the lack. And here's the irony, right? AA is a circle of people gathered around a lack, right? There's no one in the center. The Last Supper is a meal gathered around the death of God, around a lack, around a loss. 
Um, and also Burning Man's interesting. It's a festival that, that, that's created around the shared destruction of an effigy. I go like, you either have a community that is centered around a shared lack and that's healthy or a community that denies its lack and that always ends in tears. Mm. Gosh. And that, and that, that, uh, it just makes me think of so many other aspects of life. Um, relationships, you know, uh, being, being a big one. Um, just thinking back to, you know, failed relationships in the sense that, you know, you can remove one person from the equation, but it doesn't necessarily fix the issue. You know, then you're forced to confront the fact that the issue is really something that was contained within you. Yes. hundred percent, hundred percent. And relationships is a beautiful way of looking at this because, uh, Todd McGowan, a, a writer that I really like, but he, he makes a very interesting distinction between love movies and romance movies. A romance movie is a movie where two people, usually two people, um, they fight and they work and they, they have struggles until they're finally together and then the movie ends. And it has to end when they're together because it can't keep going and like look at what they're like when they're living together, right? Because it's all about this fantasy of the, of the unity which can't you know, be sustained <laughs> for any length of time. But a, a love movie is a movie that's able to express the struggles of love. It doesn't end with the kind of the unity of the couple and like the perfection it somehow is able to show the beauty of conflict within relationships of difficulty and actually showing that that's where all the fun is. So I, I want to make, um, I was trying, trying to make it for this year, but I'll probably do it for next year's one of those love pendants where there's like, it's like a heart broken in two and you know, you, one person wears one half, the other person wears the other half and they fit together. But this one, the two bits won't fit together. And that's the point is that actually we don't fit together and that's the fun bit, the difference, the sparks, the, the conflict. But if we can't find a way to have healthy conflict, then it will come out in the most unhealthy and destructive ways. Oh my gosh. I think we just hit on something too. Why is there no Pete Rollins uh, jewelry store? Because you've got the Reaper pin. Now you've got this, <laughs> you've got a, you've got a, you've got a talent for this. I think that's untapped. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Maybe that'll be my next career. I'll give up this stuff and <laughs> go into creating weird pieces of jewelry. Yeah. I've, got, I've got what I'm working on at the moment, by the way, which is a Rubik's cube that you can't do. And um, the, and it's partly to kind of talk about this is like, like the enjoyment of the Rubik's Cube is in the incompleteness. So this would be a, a pyrotheology Rubik's Cube. It's literally impossible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's pretty much every Rubik's Cube for me. But <laughs> Me too, actually. That's very true. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so bad at them. Oh, man. Um, I know we're running out of time, but I, I definitely want to, to give you uh, an opportunity to – is there anything else that you want to cover in regards to uh, the uh, upcoming um, – atheism for lent series anything anything new this year that you're excited about or just any last thought that you had that you wanted to to, to put out there oh thank you cheers thank you well yeah just to let people know if they've never heard of it before basically over lent you get one reflection a day for 40 days and then i also give a live seminar every week on on the material and one one day will be a podcast the next day might be a cartoon the next day might be a reflection from a philosopher and this year they'll all be emailed directly to your your inbox every day and 
Um, so if you sign up, you're signing up for all of those reflections. You don't have to do them all. Um, some of them are longer than others, but it's probably, you know, 15 to 30 minutes a day on average for the whole of Lent. Um, and the idea is that by the time you get to Good Friday, you really will have a appreciation of that cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, through that process. So if anybody's interested in being part of it, just fire on over to my website and uh, you'll find more information there. Starts on the 17th of February. Perfect. And we'll, we'll definitely uh, advertise it and put the, the links in the show notes and we'll We'll, we'll put a, a social media blast out there as well. Um, I, you know, we, we always love to support um, your work. You've, you've been a, a dear friend of the podcast for you know, as long as we've been around and uh, more than happy to always uh, promote, uh, you know, your, your, your uh, Atheism for Light course. It's such a, a cool thing and so unique. And uh, a lot of people who have done it in the past, I can honestly say, haven't had a, a bad uh, review of it, even though you uh, apparently I saw you like to post all of your negative reviews, which I thought was pretty funny. That's so. right. Yeah, I, I did an advert on Facebook and I got the most brilliant um, attacks. So, yeah, I thought I'd use them as part of the publicity. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But, yeah, all the people who uh, have done it through our podcast um, have loved it in the past. So I, I can't recommend it enough. If you've never done it before, um, it's a really cool way. Uh, to uh, to experience Lent, so so thanks for coming well, on again. You, man. Yeah. Really happy to be part of this again. I really appreciate what you do, mate. And so thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for coming on as always. And uh, we got to make sure it, it's not another two years before you come back again. Great. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks, man. Days like this make me go crazy. So damn cold and lonely, trying to pull through. Rain is streaming down my window I stare at the thinking where are you Oh and do you think about me too Ooh, Your heart beat with my heart in a symphony Yeah Now I'm falling apart that you're gone Cause don't you remember Late in the summer, September You kissed me and said it's forever As the birds, they sang along But then the rain came It swept you away Now it's too late To hold you again And when I'm alone And it feels like hope is gone I put on our favorite song But don't you remember